Hello and welcome to Renegade Mama. I am your host, Natalie Rees. Today on the show, I speak with research professor of psychology and neuroscience at Boston College and author of Free to Learn, Peter Gray. What I love about Peter is, as well as an academic, he has also walked his talk. When his son was rebelling against the traditional schooling system and called it a prison, which he agrees it is, they explored other options and ended up at Sudbury Valley School, which changed the course of Peter's research and ultimately his life. Peter tells this amazing story of how, when his son was 12 years old, he came to his wife and himself with a plan to travel to Europe alone. In the ultimate display of trust of a child, which he says has been lost in our culture, Peter and his wife agreed to the proposal and his son did go to Europe alone a year later at age 13. We also cover many topics including the importance of mixed age play, the importance of play in general, and moving away from competitiveness to collaboration. I also question how Sudbury, which is ultimately based on an unschooling principle, goes with government regulations, and it seems to me that America is much more liberal than Australia. We also touch on Tara Westover's book, Educated, and the irony of her story and message. Peter is a genuine and well-reached research scholar who I feel is way ahead of the game of schooling, or rather, unschooling. Peter's work is just what we need right now in this changing world where many people are feeling the calling to move into homeschool but are still a little uncertain or scared. I hope this interview helps parents realize that they, and more importantly their children, already have everything they need to learn, thrive and educate themselves. Enjoy this insightful conversation and view of what I see as the future of education. Okay, well, welcome Peter Gray uh, to The Renegade Mama. It is so wonderful to have you here. Uh, Peter, you are a research professor at Boston College. But what I love about you, as I said before we started, is that you walk your talk. So you yourself, when um, your son was in school, he was not doing so well, I guess you could say, in ordinary school, so you explored other options. Is that right? Yeah. So as I um, describe at uh, the beginning of my book, Free to Learn, I really got interested in this area of research uh, <laughs> as a result of the fact that my son was very rebellious in public school. He went to a what most people would call a nice uh, suburban public school from kindergarten on through fourth grade, uh, rebelling all the way. He hated it. He thought it was prison. He <laughs> he thought it... Um, because he, it is prison, as you describe and, in your um, book. And, and finally convinced me that it is. And so um, he rebelled in such a way, uh, I won't go into the details, but some of the details are in the book, but um, he, he rebelled in such a way as to convince his mother and me that we had to find something else for him. That school wasn't going to work. This was quite many years ago. And 
homeschooling wasn't a big deal, that thing that we didn't know much about homeschooling and we weren't really in a position to do that for a variety of reasons anyway. So um, we looked at various alternative schools. Uh, there's some nice uh, progressive schools in the uh, area, not too far from where we lived. We couldn't have afforded them. They were all very expensive, but there was a chance that they would give him a scholarship and he could go to any of them. But we visited those schools and his view was, and he was pretty articulate about it. Well, these are prisons too. They're just kind of a little bit posher prisons. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they're a little, people are, are, you know, they speak nicer, but you're just as much prison. And then we went to uh, the Sudbury Valley School, which I had heard of before. Um, and I'm not sure why we didn't go there earlier, but it's uh, so radically different from anything like an actual school. I'd heard of it and I was open to it. But, um, but uh, so finally, when we went there, uh, my son um, said, you know, this is what a school should be. If this is true, if they're not putting on a show here, this is what a school should be. And he was a little distrustful for a while. They all, they require a visiting week. And by the end of the visiting week, he said, yeah, this is real. This is where I want to be. And he's been there almost ever since because he not only was a student there through, um, through the rest of his K through 12 schooling, but after some period of time away where he did go to college and then he had a, another kind of job as uh, running the computers for a company. As soon as the uh, a position for staff opened up at that school, he applied for it and he's been there ever since and probably will be there as long as he gets keeps getting reelected to staff. To be on the staff there, you have to uh, get reelected every year. The, there's no permanent, there's no such thing as tenure. There's no permanent staff members, even the founder of the school, the two founders of the school. Um, who founded the school about 52 years ago and are still there, uh, have to get reelected to staff every year. Uh, it's not automatic. Not everybody does get reelected to staff. So this is a school where um, children are not <clears throat> taught in any deliberate way. Um, it's a, you know, some people think it would be like a Montessori school or something like that, but it's not. It's um, it's a place where kids are really and truly responsible for their own education. And uh, classes aren't even offered. Teachers don't tell kids what to do. Uh, in fact, the, I use the word teachers, but they don't use the word teachers. And they don't even use the word facilitators. They just are staff members. And they don't believe they do any more teaching or facilitation than anybody else at the school. Um, the school is uh, age mixed. There are kids from age four on through high school age, on through mid to late teens. And, um, and uh, they're not segregated by age. They're not assigned to any particular spaces. They're not given labels that segregate them in some way, like first grader or second grader or high school student or middle school student or any of that kind of thing. There's just a bunch of kids <laughs> and adults. And... Um, a lot of things to do, a lot of outdoor area at this school, and it's next to a state park. So there's a nice forest there that the kids can go and play in. Uh, and there's a lot of equipment around that has accumulated over the years and kids can use it as they wish. Um, 
and um, and that's the way the school operates. And so, so I got involved um, in doing research at the school because I was um, I I really was doubly motivated. My primary motivation at the beginning was as a concerned father. Um, like uh, probably most parents would uh, feel like, you know, this is really a pretty radical thing. And I began to, and I was happy that my son liked it and that he was happy and the, the you know, the smile was returning to his face and the twink and the brightness of his eyes. And he, I wasn't worried about his learning. He was clearly learning all kinds of wonderful things and glowing, but I, I wondered, you know, <clears throat> Is he going to, if he decides he wants to pursue a career that requires higher education, can he go on from a school like this? He, you know, you, we, we think that to go to college, you have to take certain courses, right? And even certain required courses, let alone, you know, and, and here there, he's not taking any course, not doing anything that looks like a course, not taking any tests. There's no grades, none of this stuff that we usually think of as school. And we usually think are so important for going on to college if you want to go on to college. I'm a college professor. I didn't, I, even then I was not the kind of father who would push my son to go to college. I think too many people go to college. I don't think so many should go. And I don't think there's any shame at all in not going to college. Some of the smartest people I know didn't go to college. They don't need college, right? They know ways of making a good living without it. But, you know, there are the reality is in our society, there are certain kinds of jobs. If you want them, you kind of have to go to college. You can't, if you want to be a doctor, you can't, in, our, in the U.S., you can't, I think legally you can, but practically you can't just go to medical school without going to a four-year college first. So similarly with quite a number of other jobs. So I was worried about that. I was also a little concerned, mostly what you see, kind of because it's very visible when you walk around the school, you see a lot of art going on, you see a lot of music going on. So I thought, do, do they all grow up to be starving artists and musicians? <laughs> you know, <are> they, <laughs> do any of them become something else? <laughs> you know, So, uh, you know, not that there's anything wrong with being an artist or musician, but it'd be nice, you know, if my son made a living, uh, <laughs> wasn't stuck in my basement the rest of his life or something like that. So I... I was, um, I was a concerned father. And so I wanted to know what um, the graduates already, this was a long time ago. This was in the, this was around 1980 that I began to do this study, but already the school had been in existence long enough that there had been um, uh, about um, 90 people who I considered to be graduates of the school, left the school at an age, roughly the age that you would typically graduate from a high school and didn't go on to any other secondary school. That's what I, we defi defined as a graduate. Mm -hmm. For about 90 of them, and with the help of um, uh, David Chenoff, who at that time was a part-time uh, staff member there, so he collaborated with me. We, I, we found, we tracked almost all, all of them down. We tracked the great majority of them down, something like 90% of them down. And about 90% of those that we tracked down responded to our very extensive survey questionnaire. And we also interviewed some of them personally that were still living in the area. And the results of that uh, really ultimately changed the course of my academic career. I had been doing brain research on rats and mice, a very different kind of research. I didn't regard myself then as a 
as a developmental psychologist or somebody interested in children at all, I was interested in the brains of rats and mice so they, and how they motivate certain kinds of behaviors. But this was such an extraordinary finding. So here's kids who came to the school for a wide variety of reasons. Um, some of them because they, some of them just because the parents wanted them to go there uh, from the beginning. Some of them because they were in trouble in one way or another in school. Uh, and that trouble could be anything. Some of them had been failing. Some of them had gotten some kind of a diagnosis of something that's happened. So already was happening then. It happens even with greater frequency now. If if you don't quite fit into the school, they give you some kind of a diagnosis like ADHD or dyslexia or some darn thing like that. Yep. So there are quite a few of the kids who had diagnoses like that and the parents didn't really agree with it and, and the school wasn't working for them. There were some kids who were just rebellious like my son was and then there were and then there were the siblings of those kids so there was kind of the problem child but if you send the problem child to Sudbury Valley it's kind of hard to keep your other kids on track at the regular school so the point is there are a lot of reasons why kids were coming to school some people some people sort of look at the school and they especially if they're looking at the studies i've done and others about how well they're doing and they say oh these must be the cream of the crop and there are other people who say oh these are the flunk outs who go to the school my opinion is we got the whole spectrum they're pretty by and large they're pretty normal kids they vary in personality some of them are outgoing some of them are, are more reticent some of them are people that you would say are you know, uh, very organized, some of them very disorganized, you know, as a, we all vary in personality. And I couldn't see any in this study, I, to the degree that I could judge personality, especially in the interviews and by talking to David Chanoff, who kind of knew many of the students, I couldn't see any relationship between whether the school worked for them or not and what their personality was. But basically the school worked for everybody, at least for everybody who stayed with it. All those graduates who came, none of them regretted having gone to such a school and staying with it. Uh, they had gone on to college at about the same rate as people from that social class and that neighborhood would have gone on anyway. Ultimately about 75% went on to college. Um, uh, not necessarily right away. Um, and there would seem to be, what was kind of interesting to me is there seemed to be no relationship between um, how bright they seemed to be and whether they went to college or not. In fact, some of the kids who went to, some of the young people who went to college said, well, you know, I went to college be, unlo because unlike so-and-so knew exactly what she wanted to do, I wasn't so sure. And so I thought I'd spend some time going to college and thinking about things and figuring out what I want to do. So um, at any rate, that's a kind of a brief uh, description. Uh, and, uh, and at any rate, what I found was that they were doing very well in life. Uh, I've subsequently studied um, homeschoolers who identify as unschoolers who are not doing a curriculum at home and uh, found very similar results. They go to college if they want, even if they've never taken a course before or done a test. Um, and, um, and one thing that's, that's uh, worth mentioning from both of these studies, one of the things that really stood out was that when I, um, so in both of these studies, I, we looked at the careers that they had gone into and we also interviewed them or surveyed them about what kinds of interests they had as children and what they played at when they were children. And in about half the cases in both of those studies, 
there was a very direct relationship between what they became fascinated with as a child, what they really developed a passion about through their play as a child and what they were now doing to make a living as an mm. adult. And I think that's kind of rare. I, I would sometimes interview my, um, when I was still teaching and advising students at Boston College, I would sometimes interview my advisees in a similar way. Mm-hmm. And I didn't find any relationship between what they really liked to do, uh, what they had done as children and what they intended to go on as a career. So yeah. I think that's kind of unique that the graduates of a school, you know, when you're in charge of your own education, one of the results seems to be that you develop, you have time to figure out what, who you are, what you like to do. You have time to develop some uh, ability in that realm mm-hmm. uh, to try it out and to decide that, uh, you know, I'd, I'd really like to continue doing this. And is there some way I can make a living doing it? Yeah. Uh, if you if you're going to school all the time, you don't really and and especially today, the more true today than it was 30 or 40 years ago, that you're being kept so busy with schoolwork and with other things after school that you have very little time to really figure out what it is that you like to do. You're so busy doing things that other people are telling you to do, and you begin to develop the attitude that life is all about pleasing other people it's all about doing what other people expect you to do it's meeting expectations is jumping through all the hoops that people Mm -hmm. are setting for you but if you're in self-directed education nobody's setting hoops for you nobody's telling you what you have to do and so you're figuring that yourself and the result is i think the wonderful result is that instead of going on to a career where your basic aim in the career is to make a lot of money to prove that your money is like the equivalent of an A in a class in school to prove that you've risen to the top or to aim for the highest status career you can aim for, as opposed to asking, you know, what do I really like to do? My career is going to take a lot of my time. What would I really like to do for it? so that's um, exactly yeah it's so true um I was wondering if you read the book educated by Tara Westover have you read that one I I did a lot of people this was a few years ago when everybody was reading it a lot of people said I should read it so I read it um yeah I just thought it was really interesting um I don't know if it was her perspective or maybe her publishers ended up putting this perspective in but I found it really ironic because she was talking about how, um, you know, I was never taught anything. My mother didn't teach me reading or writing and I overcame everything to, you know, become this PhD student at Cambridge. And I thought you've missed the point, Tara. (laughs) The point is that your mother allowed you the opportunity to play and learn. And if she'd probably gone to the local school, she never would be where she was today because it was the way that she had that motivation to play and then consequently to learn and then to want to go to college. What's your I think thoughts? That, I think that's right. I, I think I'll, I'll take her at her word, although her siblings did say that she's exaggerated the degree of abuse, but I, yeah. who knows, but yeah. I'll take her at her word that yeah. she was kind of abused by her yeah. older brother, by yes. her father, uh, that her mother ne- in some ways neglected her. And um and so I, I don't envy her childhood. She has a right to complain about her childhood yes, if I agree. everything she says is Absolutely. true. Absolutely. Yep. But 
I agree with you, isn't it? And let's assume that she didn't learn anything during all that time. Let's assume that she was just totally ignorant, but that at some point she said, I'm going to learn. And, and the least you could say is that, you know, maybe because she hadn't gone to school, she was not burned out about learning. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it shows how quickly you could make up for, you know, we have this view, you've got to learn it early or you'll never learn it if you fall behind. It's very interesting. I'm, I'm glad you raised that book. In the study of unschooling that Gina Riley did, we did a study of, we identified 75 grown unschoolers. There were three of them that were very similar to that author and yes. their descriptions and almost the same irony. So one of, one of those three, so all three of them were girls, interestingly, are yep. young women, of course, at the point, or, or even in one case, middle-aged women, the time that we interviewed them. But mm -hmm. they're all, all girls when they were being unschooled. All of them grew up just in, in fundamentalist Christian homes. Mm -hmm. All of them said in one way or another that because they were girls, because this is the doctrine of their church, the parents didn't think it was important for them to learn anything other than domestic skills. Yeah. Their job was to take care of the home and have babies. Yeah. Also, at least two of them said their mother was really psychologically disabled and that the, they believed the real reason they were being kept on was to take care of the mother and take care of the house, which the mother was incompetent doing. And that they latched onto the term unschooling because that sounded that seemed to legitimize what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting is all three of them were doing pretty well when they by the time that we surveyed them. Yeah. One of them, comparable to the author in the book you described, is uh, what who complained bitterly about how the fact she didn't learn anything. She felt so ignorant all this time. At the time that she responded to our interview, she was a graduate student in archaeology at a one of the most prestigious archaeology programs in the United States. Interestingly, she said that she <laughs> went into archaeology in order to prove that her parents were wrong in their belief that the <laughs> earth was founded 8,000 years ago. So... <laughs> So isn't that interesting? I mean, she even got the topic of her interest, you know, yeah. from her, her parents, from facts from her parents. Uh, even if you have ignorant and abusive parents, you know, kids are amazing. They can make the best of that in some situations. I don't want to say in all situations. No. I'm not advocating ignorance and abuse. No. <laughs> what I am talking about here is the resilience of people. Yes. And we underestimate people's resilience. And I'm also mentioning here that, you know, it's really not important to learn all that stuff early on. When you want to know it, you can learn it. Mm -hmm. it's when so you true. want to know it or when you need to know it, you can learn it. And that's yeah. the time to learn it. Yeah, absolutely. And then, like you say, you're not burnt out. It comes from that intrinsic motivation yeah. and rather than this coercive kind of learning because... Right. Really, it's about your relationship with learning rather than um, getting your straight A's or whatever it might be. And I think the other thing about Tara, to prove her point as well, I think three of her brothers are also PhD. Uh, Was that right? A PhD, have PhDs. And I'm thinking, so you're saying like this story that you kind of overcome adversity like it was this crazy thing, but then your three brothers did as well. 
I mean, that's uncanny odds, isn't it? Yeah, I'd like to see their books. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I did try and do some research and see uh, right. what they said, but I couldn't find much yeah. out there. Um, what I really loved in your book was the story of your son going overseas. Was he 13? I think he came to you at 12, was it? And right, then, that's, that's right, yeah. And yeah, the, he, the uh, absolute trust that you had, I mean, that's trust to another level. And I just absolutely love that. So could you please tell that story? Yeah, so my son, um, so first of all, to put this in context, um, my wife, my late wife, his mother, um, mm -hmm. was um, uh, suffered from agoraphobia, which meant that we as a family never traveled. Uh, it was, it would, could elicit panic attacks to her. So she her his parents had never been overseas and very rarely had traveled anywhere uh and so he knew that if he was going to go to europe he was going to have to go without us mm -hmm. he had been at sudbury valley already um for three years uh, mm -hmm. the point that he hatched this plan uh and he was majoring there in Dungeons and Dragons, the game Dungeons and Dragons. And it <laughs> involves the way he was playing Dungeons and Dragons. It involves sort of deep immersion into medieval history. Mm -hmm. And he was reading a lot of medieval history. And he was very interested in castles and all these things we don't have in America. <laughs> you know, we don't have medieval history in America. It's over there in, in Europe. <laughs> right? yeah. So you don't have it in Australia either. Definitely <laughs> so, not. <laughs> So the uh, so uh, he really wanted he wanted he knew what he wanted to see there were certain museums certain castles certain things he wanted to go to and without even telling us he developed a whole plan of how we go remember this is before the internet he didn't have he didn't he couldn't do the things that you and I could do now to figure out a plan he had to work it out somehow I don't know even know how I don't know how one plans a trip to Europe in those days I never had done it yeah but he somehow figured out how to do it he planned the whole trip and then he approached us uh, with prepared to respond to any any reason that we might give him why he shouldn't go, including the he anticipated that we would say that we couldn't afford to send him. He also said, don't worry, I'm going to earn all the money for it. <laughs> I'm going to pay for it. I'm not only, I've not only planned it, I'm going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he got a job in a in a uh, restaurant at that time um, today it would be illegal but at that time he first he was just you know, washing dishes in this restaurant and then they saw he was pretty responsible so he was actually became a line cook you know he was uh, uh, at the age of 12 and um, and because he was going to Sudbury Valley and they're pretty loose about attendance and time off he could mm -hmm. he could work there at least some of the time he also uh, bargained with me, the house needed painting and he, and we paid him, you know, about one, one twentieth of what we'd pay a professional painter to paint the house. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that also involved trust. He was up on a tall ladder and painting <laughs> at the age it. of 12. Love it. So he, uh, he did all this and, um, and both his mother and I eventually agreed that he, our only concern, to be honest, as I mentioned in the book, is that he, um, from the age of nine on, he had type one diabetes, insulin dependent diabetes. 
I think it's somewhat dangerous for anybody to who has type one diabetes to be alone uh, without somebody with them. Uh, I still think that he's now he's now over fifty, and I still worry about that. Right. So the um, the I think it's dangerous um, because you could get an insulin reaction, and it looks at anybody who sees you in an insulin reaction would just think you're falling down drunk or something. They wouldn't understand. But he was wearing. He said, "I'll wear my medallion that shows I'm diabetic. It'll be very clear. I'll be very careful." And the other thing he said is, you know, you've always said that you're that you're not going to tell me I can't do something because of my age. But you know very well that when I'm 18, you won't be able to stop me from this. <laughs> so <laughs> if you try to stop me, it's because of my age. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, he he could have been a really good lawyer, I think, yes. if he was going <laughs> in that direction. Uh, <laughs> but um, so at any rate, he convinced us and he went. And, you know, at that time, phone calls were very expensive, but we insisted he call us at least once, which he did. <laughs> yeah. And he said, we'll even pay for the phone call. And so he did that. And yeah. um, the other thing I didn't learn until sometime afterwards, um, it's too bad he was only 13, but he met a um, girl on <laughs> and he, uh, who was also traveling, who was a little older than him. And who was also traveling by herself and wow. they became friends. So he wasn't completely alone. This was not a romantic kind of thing. It was just a friend. Mm -hmm. And they actually, he told me they actually went to France together. <laughs> so they, they took a side trip to France. So here he was, you know, taking this uh, amazing adventure, not just to, not just to London, but also to Paris. Um, and um and working out what he was doing as, as he went so this was a very this was of course a wonderful experience for him a great growing experience and um you know at that time this so this would have been in the in the 1980s relatively early 1980s um and at that time um kids had a lot more you know, kids were trusted a lot more kids yeah. did a lot more independent things mm -hmm. but even then that i have to say did raise some eyebrows in yeah. our, <laughs> our friends. i could imagine they, they might have trusted their kids to take a bus to new york city from boston or to do all those kinds of things that kids are not allowed to do today by most parents but i don't think most parents would have let their kid go to their 13 year old he was 13 by the time he went he had turned 13 a little earlier than he went uh, most kids would not have allowed uh, most parents would not have allowed that even then mm. <laughs> but if you if you think farther back i mean you know there were there are 12 year olds who've who've uh, gone to war there are 12 year olds who mm -hmm. have uh, who have who have started publishing companies that were successful. There are 12, you know, 12 year olds can do amazing things. And Absolutely. It's, it's from our viewpoint today, where we've infantilized children. Absolutely. Um, oh my God. Think of 12 as, as one might've used to think of as three-year-olds. You know? <laughs> I know. I mean, I was speaking to my next door neighbor, he's Irish and he's uh, in his late seventies. And I think he left home at 13 and moved from Ireland to London. And he was like, that was just what we did. Um, exactly. We wanted to get yeah. out into the world and, you know, right. he did. Um, right. And now, you know, the 13 year old can barely be trusted to be a babysitter. 
Exactly. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was babysitting by the time I was 11 and not just for my younger siblings, but for other people, certainly by 12, I think by 11. Mm-hmm. Now you'd have bringing a babysitter for your 11 year old. You know? Oh, so true. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was asking my brother-in-law, your 11 um, year old could babysit um, my, my kids. Said, oh, maybe a few years. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I wanted to ask you with Sudbury College, how do they get around the legalities of that? Because I just can't see how that would work in Australia. I mean, our government, I think, is probably (laughs) less liberal than the US. Um, So the thing about the US is, um, is there are so many different colleges, private colleges, public colleges, there's no uniform requirement every college is pretty much an independent entity. Now there are some state universities that have, that are fairly rigid in following the rule that you have to have a high, typical high school degree or you have to mm-hmm. do this or that. But even there, it's not a law, it's the college's policy. And right. if it's the college's policy, they can violate it if they want and they will. <laughs> you know. Okay. They, so, so, and the other thing here is that we have a, we have an excellent system really of community colleges. So these are two-year colleges and mm-hmm. basically anybody who's willing to pay the tuition, which is very low, mm-hmm. can go to a community college. There's no real entrance requirements for it. Uh, mm-hmm. And you can take a course or two. So what some, some kids do is even while they're still students at a Sudbury type school or still you know, uh, unschooling at home, Mm -hmm. um, they'll take a community college course or two just to show, just to have some kind of a record that they can take a a quote college course Mm. and they can do well in it. So some do that, but not all of them do that. Some just have, there are truly some, uh, both in my study of the, of the Sudbury graduates and of grown unschoolers, went right off to a four-year college without ever taking any kind of a course anywhere mm. yeah yeah <laughs> and uh and how did they do it um and th- those are interesting stories um primarily they do it by um by a strategy of really convincing the college that mm. they are the kind of person that college is looking for. Mm-hmm. So some of them, I'll, I'll tell you one story, which is, um, I, I want to call it typical, but it's probably actually one of the best stories. <laughs> so <Yes. it's>, uh, <laughs> as usually is the case when people say, I tell you a typical story. Yeah, so, yeah. This, <laughs> so, this, um, so this woman, who she was a student at Sudbury Valley, and she was interested in economics and mm-hmm. how, how a young girl gets, or a young boy either gets interested in economics is a mystery to me. <laughs> but yeah. somehow they were, she got interested, deeply interested in economics and she'd been mm-hmm. reading uh, economics books. And one of her favorite authors, one of her favorite economists was the head of the department at Brandeis University, a pretty fancy college. Um, mm-hmm in Massachusetts, a pretty difficult to get into college. Mm-hmm. So she decided she wanted to go to Brandeis and uh, because he was there, she wanted to study under him as an undergraduate. And so she applied to Brandeis and, um, and she requested an interview with this person who was chair of the department and they granted the interview. 
and um, I'm sure that she came well prepared to, to talk to him about his research and ideas. Now, I am, you know, I'm 99% sure that immediately after that interview, he called over to the admissions office and he said, you've got to admit this girl. She's a brilliant, she's a genius. <laughs> yeah. Whether she was a genius or not, she was smart enough to figure out what she had to do to get into that Absolutely. college. Absolutely. Right? I love that story. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that may make for a good economist, right? So the, yeah. uh, <laughs> So that's one story. But there are also others not too unlike that where these students so imagine that you are imagine that you're applying i think they have especially are successful in getting into the more elite colleges mm -hmm. and i think the reason is this imagine that you're the admissions officer uh, at uh, harvard or stanford or any of these american elite colleges you're going through the hundreds and hundreds of applications mm -hmm. and they're all pretty much the same everybody got all perfect grades in school they all were in all the honors classes they were in the advanced placement classes they all were elected to the honor society they every single one of them had done just the appropriate extracurricular activities that the guidance counselor was telling them you have to do in order to get into harvard and so on and so forth. So you go after one after another of these, how boring, right? I mean, you just yeah. all the same, you can't tell them apart. They're all in the essays look like they've been written either by the, by the mother who's a lawyer or the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, or the, or the guidance counselor who's going on some kind of a, of an algorithm of what makes a good. Mm. And so here is an application that looks authentic. <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the, the essay looks like it was really written by the person who's applying. Mm -hmm. And the person says, well, I can't tell, I don't have any grades. <laughs> I have yeah. I haven't taken any tests. They may have taken the SAT test, which is yes. the stand, which is the standard test in America mm -hmm. for that. Not all colleges require, but they may have taken that and they studied yeah. for that and they did fine yes. on it. You can yeah. you can prepare yourself for that in a relatively short amount of time, even if you don't know anything else. But just by preparing for that test, you can mm -hmm. do it. And so they may have done that, but uh, but basically have nothing else except kind of some kind of a portfolio of stuff they've done. Here are essays I've written. Here are mm -hmm. these things that I've done. Here are these. And so in a way, how can you just flatly say no to this? This, is, this looks like an interesting person. This will bring, this person at minimum will bring some diversity of background to our student population. Yeah. And so the typical way to judge that person is to invite them for interviews. And if you've been self-directed in your education, you one of the consequences is that you're good at interviews. You're not afraid of adults. You look so adults true. in the eye. Yeah. You ask them, you you kind of interview them you know, yes. as, as, as they're interviewing you, just as just as you would if you're highly qualified and applying for a job. You want to know, is this the job I want? You don't want to just try to impress the person. You want them to impress you too. So that's the um, so, so I think that that I think that that happens in quite a number of cases. So there's yeah. a variety of ways that they get into college, and then it's also interesting how they do well in college. You know, that would be the other thing people would worry about. Well, so you got in, but here you are. You're taking these courses, and you've never taken a course before. Whatever course you're taking, let's say you're taking a biology course. The other students have already taken biology at high school. Don't 
they don't they know a lot that you don't know that would make you really struggle in that class? Well, it turns out it not not to be the problem that most people think it would be. You know, number one, I think may, maybe the main reason is nobody remembers what they learned in their high school biology anyway, right? So I true. Mean, so you know, true. <laughs> they remember so little of it. And that's true. And every professor knows, no matter where they're teaching, and this was true for me too, when I was teaching college, you don't assume that they remember anything from high school. So you, you begin from scratch. You may move at a faster level. You may be more sophisticated in how you're covering the course, but you don't. You, you start from the beginning. You start from the assumption of no knowledge. Yeah. And that's pretty much true across the board in every case. So you're not really at a loss. Yeah. But then let's say in this day and age, let's say that, that that's not entirely true. Let's say the professor does assume a little bit of knowledge. So maybe the professor in biology starts using some term that he assumes everybody would know from high school, like meiosis. Mm-hmm. So he's suddenly talking about meiosis and you don't know what meiosis is, but um, so, you know, today you've got your iPhone there, you know, <laughs> your <Done>. Google meiosis. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's what it is. All right. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's not hard to even, you know, even before all that students would, they'd make a note of it and they go to the library and they'd look it up and fill in what gaps they had. There's being self-directed. They take charge of their responsibility for what they need to do and they f- figure out how to do it. And so, yeah. But now it's much, even much easier. I mean, this idea that you have to learn stuff and keep it in your head is no longer true because we, we've all got the touch of a, you know, a couple of clicks. We can find anything we want to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, um, so that's really changed the realities of the world in terms of knowledge. It hasn't, unfortunately, changed at all the way our, our typical schools operate. No, no. Yeah, what I was particularly, what w- wouldn't happen here, I can't see how legally we would be allowed to have a school like Sudbury in Australia. We, we are um, highly regulated. So you wouldn't be able to have no curriculum. It's so not you allowed. Couldn't, you, you couldn't get public funding in the United States, for, in most states, and probably in all states, for mm. a school like Sudbury. So it has to be a private school. We couldn't even allow. Be, and we, you can't even have private schools. So here there's more freedom in the sense yeah. that private schools can pretty much do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. That's and nice. it, it, vary, it varies by state, but yeah. there are really no states that I know of where you can't, in one way or another, do unschooling at home and or do a Sudbury type school Uh, and some states make it a little more difficult there's some hoops you have Mm -hmm. to go through and maybe you have to check in with somebody periodically to let them know that where the parent if it's homeschooling the parent Mm -hmm. has to has to give them some report every year about what the child has been doing and Mm -hmm. what they're learning and parents get very good at mapping whatever the child is doing onto academic language so mm, mm, mm. you know build gathering rocks and um shells on the beach is uh is both geology and biology yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah i mean the only way you would do it here and kind of what we do do is um we register as homeschoolers and then there are many programs that our kids can go to that aren't uh-huh. um 
considered a school at all. They're just a class that you take run by different people. And so I run one here uh-huh. on a Monday that kids come to. And uh-huh. um, yeah, but we at this stage, we can't have like a school like Sudbury. But, you know, right. like you say, there's hoops you can jump through and do it your own right. kind of way. Well, that's true in a lot of places. And in Europe, there, there are... Um, in, in a number of countries, there are people who've been struggling to start Sudbury schools. Um, France has been pretty good. There are Sudbury schools in France. Um, the the uh, Germany, there's um, there's one that's been doing it underground, kind of, they just mm-hmm. haven't been caught. Um, yeah. there, but there's another that's been struggling for years to uh, legit legitimize itself and then they get temporary permission and then they're closed down and then so and the, the netherlands i i know i'm friends with people there who've been fighting to get uh you know they had a sudbury school that went for years and then the school inspector came out and said well this doesn't you know even the school inspector is sympathetic he's saying you know the i can see the kids are happy and they're doing well and all in that but you know uh, my job is to follow the law. <laughs> this is not by the laws of the Netherlands. This is not a school, and so I'm sorry. <laughs> so that's the uh, that's the irony, you know. Even the people who are even the people who are who who are enforcing the law can see when they actually visit such a school. Um, they become they they begin to see, you know, this is this might be where I would have liked to have been a student you know, or send my own child. Uh, yeah. And I think, I mean, for me, where I'm at, I think the only way is to be outside of the system. You know, it would be wonderful to have the support of the government and blah, blah, blah. But right. the only way I can see um, with birthing, with schooling, is to go outside of the system because it is so narrow and so restrictive, especially in Australia, of what kind of school right. you can um, create or have. So homeschooling it is for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, we really enjoy that. I think it um, is wonderful. Um, and, yeah, just need to grow the community. And it is growing in times like these. Um, I don't know about in... America, but I think in the last few years, um, it's grown like three or four or five times. And I'm sure even, I don't know what the statistics during this COVID time, but we're seeing more and more people kind of realizing, oh, the system hasn't been working for my child. And I've had this opportunity to stay at home. And um, Right. Right. Yeah, that's definitely happened in the United States, too. And uh, according to the U.S. Census Bureau for a while, I don't know if they're still doing it, was doing every couple of months um, survey of how many homeschoolers there were, what percentage were homeschooling. Mm -hmm. And uh, prior to COVID, it was hovering, it had for a number of years been hovering around 4% of American families Mm -hmm. uh, were homeschooling their school age kids. Mm -hmm. And um, the uh, the summer of 2020, uh, they did the survey in August of 2020, and at that point it had jumped up to 11 percent. Wow. And then they did a survey a few months later, and the report was that it had jumped up to 19 percent, which Whoa. is a huge jump. And what's 
and I'm not sure if it has gone down since then. And I'm not even 100% sure about that 19%. I read it in one report, um, but I wasn't able to verify it by looking at other reports. But that was, that was one report. The earlier report where it was 11% um, also had a very interesting statistic among Black families in America, mm -hmm. it, had, it had jumped from less from around 2%. Black mm -hmm. families were less likely to homeschool before COVID up yeah. to 16%. Oh, so they Amazing. were now much more likely than white families to be homeschooling. There was a big movement. There's still, there's a huge yeah. movement that started even before COVID, but yeah. do you know really a lady, accelerated. Do you know a lady called Muffy Mendoza? Have you What's seen that? her? Her name is Muffy Mendoza. No, I don't. Yeah, and she is one of the, I guess you could say, leaders. Um, I uh -huh. What's her organization? It's, oh, I can't remember, but it's something brown. Leaders, I can't remember, but it's about um, helping, she says, brown people kind of reclaim their power and homeschool their children. And um, so I think she's totally leading the way. I've tried to ask her on my podcast, but I haven't heard back from her yet. But I think she's doing really great stuff. Um, right, right, yeah. There are there are there are several kind of leaders in the America of this movement, and it's it's also is tied in also with a general, more general liberation movement. And I think that jump in homeschooling. I think even the the famous case that occurred of a police killing of uh, in cold blood of a, of a black man um, mm. they led to a, a lot of um, not that this was actually so unique but it was because it was so clearly photographed it was so obvious what had happened mm. it led to a lot of demonstrations it really revitalized um, black liberation movement in this country yeah. and I think the homeschooling unschooling was the movement these things got combined in a way this is mm -hmm. our children are being harmed even more than white children are in the regular school they're Absolutely. discriminated against in various kinds of ways and part of freeing ourselves is to free our children from these schools so yeah the shackles uh, of the schools honestly um uh, i think you say in the end of your book something about the change is not going to come from within the system. Is that right? right? Yes, I do say that. And I still very much believe that it can't, I don't think it can come within the system because no. the system is, um, it, it, it's too, if you try to, you know, people think that, well, you could change it gradually, but the problem is gradual change doesn't really work. You know, we've, we've got the history. I mean, ever since schools became compulsory in the United States, beginning in the late 19th century and on, there's sort of been these cycles. There are periods where, like in the early part of the 20th century, the, uh, Dewey was, a, was a, a progressive educator. There was a big progressive movement in the public schools where there was a, trying more freedom, more choices within the school, more... Uh, and, and then, and then that move, then the problem is then when you're testing children, you find that, well, they're not learning what you wanted them to learn that you're testing them on. They may be learning interesting stuff, 
but they're not doing so well on these tests. So as long as you have tests and, um, and the system has never been able to get rid of the idea, we have to have tests. So as long as you have tests and where you're expecting the pro where you're expecting everybody to be passing the same test, but if everybody's learning different things because they're doing different stuff, they're not all going to pass the same test, right? <laughs> nope. Even if, even if you try to modify the test to fit the system, there, you'd have to give a different test for every person. And what would be the point of that, right? Yeah. So, the, <laughs> exactly. so, the, so the problem is, unless you give up testing and the schools have never been willing to do that, you're mm -hmm. going to go through these cycles. You're going to go through a period of, of uh, let's be nicer to the kids, let's loosen up, allow more play, allow more choice. Oh, but then, then you find the test scores go down. And then you have this big move. People start writing books about how nobody's about how nobody's learning to read at the age they should be learning to read. Nobody, nobody knows history and geography the way they ought to know history and geography by such and such an age. And then, the, and then there's this big movement to tighten up the, the, and we've been through this cycle two or three times now over the history of our schools. Mm -hmm. So it always just goes back and forth. Um, the, the things that make a Sudbury school work are, are things that you can't just add in piecemeal. You kind of they, you kind of have to have the whole picture. One is no testing. Mm -hmm. That's a huge part. No evaluation. What what school is the school system ever going to say that we are not going to evaluate students? We're just going to let them do what they want. No. <laughs> you know, we're gonna, it's we're never going to happen. Trust. They're just not going to do that. In addition to that, you've got to break down some of the other traditions of the school. You've got to have age mixing because if everybody's the same age and you have a system where people are learning from one another, you're really narrowing who they can learn from if you're sticking them with people all the same age. In the secondary mm -hmm. school, a lot of the most of the learning occurs through interaction with other people. When little kids are interacting with older kids, they're always being brought up to higher levels of behavior. They're learning to read, they're learning numbers, they're learning all kinds of things. Absolutely. By playing with kids who could do those things. Yes. And so so you've got to take the you've got to take the whole thing. You can't and the schools are not just going to suddenly the public schools is not just going to suddenly take the whole thing. So the way I see the revolution occurring, and I believe it's already occurring in a way, oh, yeah. is by people leaving the school system yeah. and, um, and, doing, and, and, and doing homeschooling or unschooling or mm -hmm. Sudbury schooling or something where they're figuring out what to do to give their child the opportunities to learn in the ch way the child wants to learn. And um, I think that there's a gradual, um, there's been a gradual increase over many decades now in the number of people leaving. And I think that's beginning to accelerate. Now, accelerated greatly with COVA. Oh, but, yeah. but, I, but I think that, um, but I, and I, I think some of that is temporary, but I don't think all of it is temporary. I think a lot of these people are going to stay. And I think we're almost kind of at what, some sociologists would call the tipping point, the point in which there are enough people doing it that it no longer seems like such a strange and radical thing to do. Absolutely. When you're, when you're at that point, then people uh, begin to look at it as a legitimate choice mm -hmm. uh, instead of seeing it as, I, as something you'd have to be really courageous to do or yeah. really stupid to do. Yes. Right? They, yes. they begin to see it as one of several things you could do. And I think that once that happens, 
then it, it still may take a little while, but I think at some point the schools would empty out and then they oh, would, yeah. either then the schools would completely have to change mm -hmm. in order to survive as public schools or they would become irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's been so many things <laughs> to thank COVID for enough. This is one right. of them. Um, right. and it will also be a blessing um, to the teachers. I mean, I think in your family also, like um, I'm from a family of teachers, two of my brothers are teachers, my sister-in-law is a teacher, and especially one of them feels so suffocated by the system. You know, he, right. a majority of teachers, I would say, I've got great hearts and want to do different things, but they're so oh, yeah, absolutely. restricted right. by the system um, right. that they <laughs> can't. I, you know, I say, "What can you do? This can you do that?" And um, it's like, "No, can't do this. Can't do that. There's not time. I have to get this curriculum. Got to do this test, kind of thing." Right. And um, right. I think it's exciting times for them as well. Um, to be part of the change and free up what they really want to be doing and uh, what kind of community they want to be. And um, especially here in Australia, um, and I don't, I don't know your viewpoints on this, but uh, we're being mandated for all teachers to have the vaccine as well. And so we're seeing a, a mass exodus of teachers from the system um, that don't want to comply with that. So it's really moving fast in both directions from the students, from the teachers, from the, uh, the parents, it's right. exciting. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, what's happened over time in the United States is um, schools have gotten worse because teachers have been over time given much less choice of what they can do in the classroom. So oh, there's yeah. all these mandates, all these, all these um, schools, teachers, um, whole school systems are being judged on the basis of the test scores, the standardized test scores, the same tests being given across at least across everybody within the state, if not within mm -hmm. the whole country. And, uh, and so the job basically of the teacher is to get the highest test scores you could get out mm -hmm. of the kids. And so, and that, and also the superintendents feel that way and they, and they, and the superintendents and principals of the school buy into the idea that if the if the teacher decides to do something that's not on that curriculum, not aimed directly towards increasing those test scores, then this is time wasted. Mm -hmm. And so the teachers get real pressure and really being required. So I hear from teacher after teacher saying, I'm no more free than the children are. I remind yeah. them you actually are more free than the children because you could quit. Yes. <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> they can't. They're locked up but, for the 12 years. In some sense, as long as they're there, they believe, and perhaps correctly so, that they aren't any more free than the children. They've got to do what they're... And the result of that is that a lot of longtime teachers, including my own half-sister, uh, who was a longtime teacher in middle school, um, who, who used to really enjoy school teaching, you know, didn't have the same ideas that I have. She thought she was doing a good thing that, and she, I'm sure she was a very good teacher, but as times change, as there was a new principal in the school who would not allow her to do the things that she felt needed to be done to make the, the middle school classes fun and relevant to the kids and, 
she couldn't stand doing it anymore. She began to feel like she was doing more harm than good. Mm -hmm. She was getting depressed. She took a leave of absence for depression about her job. And then after mm -hmm. that leave of absence, she said, there's no way I can go back. And mm -hmm. so she left before she was ready to get really ready for retirement and a full ten pension but she mm -hmm. left um and has never regretted doing that so somebody who really in the past enjoyed teaching by the time and, and i've heard now from many other teachers i actually have a blog post that's based on uh, my hearing from dozens and dozens of kindergarten teachers who have all quit longtime kindergarten teachers who have quit because they're being required to force little children in kindergarten to do academic work. And they can see the harm that's being done. They can see it right in front of their eyes. These little children are not meant to be do, sitting in their seats doing assigned seat work. That's not how little children are biologically programmed. And so <laughs> I don't think any of us are, but especially little children aren't. And, um, and, and so the this is this is happening we have really you know this whole this whole thing that really sort of began in the 1980 late 1980s into the 90s and it's kind of worldwide but it, it but i know it in the united states especially of um, uh, standardized testing teaching you the test um, measuring the success of schools by the test and when you look at the tests you say oh, you know is this really important? Do you, do, you know, um, can I pass those tests? I'm I'm a fairly successful adult. I don't think no. I could pass those tests. I don't <laughs> remember that stuff. You know? Very <laughs> true. Why why do we think this is important? I just um, it's just completely arbitrary yeah. what they've decided is important. And then and then and then we're drive, literally driving kids crazy, truly and truly. And that's I mean it seriously because the mm -hmm. rates of depression and anxiety and even suicide in the American Huge. schools and high schools has um, has skyrocketed as directly as a result of this increased pressure and the Absolutely. decreased time that children and teenagers have to play and pursue their own interests and just relax and be kids. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, what I found really interesting in your book is at the start when you talk about the hunter-gatherer um, societies and I really love, love delving into that that's one of my areas of interest as well but just how non-competitive they were and this kind of links back to the testing it's like instinctively right. we're not competitive people um, even though we we are as a society today and you know I've been really conscious um, of that since reading that in your book to try and bring it into my life more and more. But I just realized how we do it on every level. I mean, right. even just playing a card game, for example, everything's about, oh, look at the winner. Oh, let's celebrate them. And so with my program, little homeschool program that I do, I'm just doing more and more collaborative work with the kids. Um, and I mean, I'm not really facilitating it at all. It's them, right. but just, a lot, just trying not to do any kind of competitive activities. Um, and just, it is so good for their social skills, their negotiating skills. Um, right. <laughs> this week was, um, I have chickens and they're obsessed with catching my chickens. And just to watch, <laughs> there's um, kids from four to 10, um, about there's 12 of them 
just watching them negotiate how they're going to catch my chicken. And then they had a chicken. <laughs> the chickens got married. It was very cute. Um, but yeah, just working together, just, oh, right. I can't even explain or um, right. articulate how beautiful it was to watch. Right. Right. Well, you know, I think that kids are not, um, are not particularly naturally competitive. I don't want to say that in our culture, they don't sometimes compete because we yeah. live in a competitive culture and yeah. kids uh, quite understandably tend to model the culture even in their own play. Yeah. But generally speaking, even in our culture in America, and the same is probably true in Australia, which are competitive cultures, when kids are playing on their own, they're not generally very competitive, even if they're playing a pseudo competitive game, they're playing it more to have fun, they're playing mm. it. And this is especially true if it's age mix. So that's mm. I've, a lot of my research has to do with the value of age mixing. Yes. And so if you've got kids playing together, and you know, ranging from five years old to 14 years old, mm. there's no point in being competitive. <laughs> of yes. course, the, the, the bigger kid is going to win every time. Yeah. Uh, so even if you're playing something that's pseudo competitive, you work out some way that basically makes it fun and the older one is handicapping in some way to make to keep the challenge going. And mm -hmm. there, there may be a winner, but nobody really cares. I mean, nobody you've you've altered the thing to kind of make fun. Nobody cares who there's no long lasting effect of winning or losing. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like the difference between one of the things I, I, I write about is the difference between the way kids played baseball, which is supposedly the American pastime, the American sport, which yeah. is less true today than it was then. But, mm -hmm. but when I was growing up, at least for two or three years, baseball was the big thing. All the kids played baseball. We'd go to the vacant lot, mostly boys, but sometimes girls would join us too, play baseball. And we'd make up our own games and there were no adults involved. We'd choose up teams. We'd create bases. It would be usually in a vacant lot of some sort. We'd create the ground rules. We would negotiate how we're doing it. There's a tremendous amount of learning that's going on in that. And then, and then you play the game and you may cheer wildly every time your team makes a point. I mean, that's the whole point of the game is to score points, right? And so you yeah. cheer by the end of the game chances are you don't even know what you don't you haven't really kept track of the score or if you did keep track of the score by the next day you've forgotten that and the whole the teams are different the next day anyway so you're playing this pseudo competitive game I and mean, you're all trying to do your best in this game and you're cheering about getting points because that's the whole purpose of the game is to get points yeah but but the truth of the matter is nobody cares who wins or loses now as soon as adults get involved and they start coaching and you've got teams and first of all all that all that learning that occurs about creating the teams and creating the space and making your own rules and forcing the rules yourself that's all lost so those are of course skills much more important than baseball mm -hmm. but the other thing that happens is the game becomes clearly competitive now there's a trophy on the line now the scores are officially recorded now you've got people including god forbid your parents sitting there watching you playing this game 
no parents should ever go to those games, but they do. And, yeah. uh, and in fact, you're probably regarded as a negligent parent if you don't. Mm. <laughs> and so now it becomes all, it becomes all a matter of the pressure of, and your parents might be booing the empire and you're was embarrassing. And so oh, they, yeah. So adults just absolutely ruin it for kids. And adults ruin it when they start taking over and they call, and they have, and then they call this play, but it's not play anymore. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's um, wrap up there. But can we just end on um, the importance of play? If you could speak to a little bit about, to speak to us a little bit about that. Okay, so so play. First of all, let me let me explain what play is. Yeah. Because we use, it's a word we use to cover a lot of ground. And, mm -hmm. and when, when I use the word play, and when other people who are play scholars who are studying play use the word, what uh, we mean is this. We mean an activity that is self-chosen and self-directed. So if there's an adult saying, now children are all going to play this, it's not play. Yeah. <laughs> play is what children themselves choose and decide to do. Mm -hmm. And if you if you've got a coach directing you who's not one of the players telling you what to do, then it's also not play. So right off, you can see why play is so important for some of the most important lessons, how to decide what to do, how to how to make rules for what you're doing, how to negotiate with your playmates to decide mm -hmm. what to do, because if if I decide to do this and you're my friend and we're we want to play together, but you decide to do you want to do something else, then we've got to find something we both want to do. So we've got to negotiate to figure out what we're going to do and what an important skill that is. And I have to pay attention to you as we're playing, as you have to pay attention to me, because if one of us isn't happy, we're going to quit. Mm -hmm. So since we both want to play, we've got to be concerned not only with our own happiness, but we've got to be concerned with the other person's happiness, which is maybe the most important skill that human beings have to learn. You can't have a happy life if you can't keep other people happy. You can't have a decent marriage. You can't have real friends. You can't have real work partners if you don't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. And 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 children are learning that when they're playing with other children, when there's no adult around solving the problem. So they have to solve the problems themselves. They have to figure out how to do that, how to negotiate, how to pay attention. So right off there. The other, thing, the other characteristics of play, so people talk about unstructured play, but I don't use that term. And the reason is because all play is structured. All play is, play is never random activity. This is another part of the defining characteristics of play. There are certain boundaries, certain rules, certain, certain things you have to do within play. You may be creating those rules. Those rules may be passed down. Those rules are flexible. You can change them. But you've always got something in mind that you're doing when you're playing. So you are, you are learning how to develop um, a kind of a script of what you're doing and then to follow through on it. You're, you're making a sandcastle. You're not just randomly piling up sand on the beach. You're making a sandcastle. You're doing something very deliberate and clear and you have in your mind what kind of a sandcastle. Or you're playing a fantasy game and you are 
you are a princess and now you've got to act like a princess however a princess acts or you're a troll and you have to act like a troll and if you don't act like a troll you're 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 your playmates are going to remind you about or maybe you're the pet dog and you got to walk around on all fours and and you can't talk and you have to just bark as yep. much as you might want to get up off of all fours because it's uncomfortable and stop barking you you have to do that yep. so you you are learning to inhibit your impulses you're learning yes. to follow rules in order to play whatever the game is all games have rules mm -hmm. in that sense those in that sense the other thing about play is it always involves an element of imagination and imagination is the highest form of human thinking it's all of what we call hypothetical reasoning is imagination imagine that this is true, then what else has to be true. Imagine that there's a troll under the bridge oh well if there's a troll under the bridge. We better not go under the bridge. That's that's hypothetical deductive reasoning and three year olds can do it right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in the context of play. And they're practicing that highest level of reasoning when they're playing. They're practicing logic. They're practicing. So, um, so those are you know those are just some of the things that I can come right <laughs> off with. Yeah. You know, so in play, yeah. you're learning social skills. You're learning how to how to control your impulses and follow rules. You're learning how to imagine. You're you're exercising your imagination. Play is also even though it has rules, it's always creative. They're always. Yeah. <clears throat> various moves you can make within the boundaries of the rules so you're yeah. learning to be creative and then finally the, uh, children everywhere when they're free to do so play in risky ways they do things mm -hmm. that are a little bit dangerous that their parents would like to stop them from doing it because they think it's dangerous but if but but it turns out that other young mammals also play in dangerous ways and if you think about it, there's good reason why they would, because all of us at some points in our life are going to face real emergencies. We're going to be in real danger at some point in our lives. And if we haven't practiced being in danger, if we haven't practiced feeling a little bit of fear that we can control because we, we climbed up that tree, we can climb back down if we want to, but we climbed up that tree high enough to feel a certain amount of fear. We're testing ourselves. We're learning, I can feel this much fear and I can survive it. I don't mm -hmm. go crazy from this fear. I can, I'm not having a panic attack and I can control my mind and I can control my body while feeling this fear. What an important thing to learn. And so when we prevent children from playing in these somewhat dangerous ways, we're preventing them basically from developing courage. We're preventing them from developing the ability to face fear with confidence. Yeah. And, so, and so that's another thing that children learn in play when we allow them to play in risky ways. They're also learning to control their anger mm. because when children are playing, they sometimes get mad at one another, quite understandably, they get mad at one another. So you've got, so, you know, you and I are playing and we're negotiating and, uh, but I'm being a little bit of a bully and, 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 but you don't quite want to walk away. Um, but so you, you get mad at me, you say, you know, <laughs> you, you holler at me, maybe you hit me, right? So I, but that would probably ruin the play if you hit me, and then we'd have a fight and then it'd be all over. Maybe you'd have a temper tantrum, and but I've never seen a temper tantrum work with kids. It might work with adults. So what you learn is some way of dealing, um, dealing in a in a in a in an effective way with your anger. So you say, "Hey, 
you know, stop that. Yeah. <laughs> that, that really hurt. So I'm, I'm not going to play with you if you're going to do that. So that, so you become, you learn how to be assertive with your anger rather than to lash out. Not everybody learns that. I, and I'm not saying that, that, that play is the perfect teacher and everybody's now going to grow up knowing exactly how to deal, but it really helps. I mean, children are, children learn so what, and this also seems to be true with other animals. Most animals, most young mammals play, especially males, play a lot of rough and tumble uh, kinds of games, play fighting. And sometimes they accidentally, that play nip is a little too hard and it becomes, it hurts the other animal. And then the other animal starts to attack. And the animals have ways, if this is wolves or dogs, most people who have dogs have seen this in their dogs. So the dog will, the dog who's about to attack, the other dog who bit that dog too, too hard will, if it that wants to continue playing, step back and go into a play bow, which mm. is basically an apology and saying, I want to keep playing. So we, in various ways, learn that same thing, how to apologize, how to how to accept, you know, uh, accept uh, the fact that, yes, that was a mistake. I didn't mean to do that. Let's keep playing. We may use words where the dog uses the play bow to do it, but we also use nonverbal expressions that show that we feel guilty or shameful, ashamed that we did that, that this is a sincere apology. Mm -hmm. um, so all of these things, these are- So many. You know, think about these things that I've just listed that you learn in play. Mm -hmm. These are way more important than anything that's taught in school. Yeah. <laughs> All yes. those things that are taught in school, to the degree that they're important, you'll learn them in regular life anyway. Mm -hmm. And um, but these things, these things you you really need, you need to learn them from experience. And so for children, play is that experience because mm -hmm. it's really play is really almost the only situation where children are not being told what to do by yeah. adults. And yeah. you can't learn any of these things as long as you're being, as long as your problems are being solved by adults and you're being told what to do by adults, mm -hmm. you're not learning any of these things that I just described. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think about critical thinking? Does that link to play at all? I think it does too. I think that, um, that critical thinking, I believe, so the, the great Russian psychologist, Lev Vygotsky, um, said that critical thinking, he just called it thinking, because if yes. it's not critical, it's not thinking, yes. <laughs> is, uh, is, um, uh, comes out of dialogue. And I think he makes a good point. And I think when, when children are playing together, you can see critical thinking develop. So, and it's more likely to develop in dialogue among children than it is between a child and an adult. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's more likely to develop there between a child and the adult, the adult has too much authority and the yeah. child doesn't feel empowered unless it's my son, <laughs> empowered <laughs> to challenge the adults. <laughs> yeah. Some children do, some children yeah. feel empowered to do that and they'll do it very effectively. And some parents will respond appropriate instead of just saying, I, because I told you so, they will <laughs> engage in a discussion. So, but generally speaking, that when it's children talking with one another, so let's say that uh, I, I actually, in, our, in my study, we did a study of um, age mix interactions at Sudbury Valley, and we documented a lot of critical thinking that kind of developed as a result of dialogue. So. 
here's kind of an example of it. So one of the one of the situations. This was actually my graduate student who who observed this setting. So there's a a young boy, maybe maybe he's about eight years old, uh, who has this friend at the school who's about twelve mm -hmm. uh, or thirteen, and he's he's talking he's talking to his older friend and saying, complaining about some other young kid who's been calling him names that he doesn't like. And he's upset about this. This is bothering him that this other kid is calling him these names that he doesn't like. And so he's trying to get advice from the older child. And the older child says, well, bring him up to the judicial committee. So the, the way Sudbury works is it has these rules. And if somebody violates a rule, you take them to the judicial committee and it's like a trial by your peers and their students of all ages as well as a staff member and you make your complaint there and then it gets settled but the little kid says well i told him that i might take him up to the judicial committee but he said they'll decide he said there's free speech i can say what i want we have free speech here and so so here's the little kid saying i can't take him to the judicial committee because we have free speech now I could, according to my graduate student observing this, there was kind of a pause then, and the older kid had to think, <laughs> probably <laughs> critically. Yeah. All right. So, so what? How could one respond to that? So here is this kid who's being really bothered by, by being called this name he doesn't want to hear, and and so the older kid is then he comes back saying, well, so he has free speech, but you have freedom not to be harassed. You have freedom not to hear what he says that is that is offensive to you. <laughs> so this is not a matter of freedom versus non-freedom. This is a matter of there are two different freedoms here <laughs> yeah. that are in conflict with one another. And so I think it would be perfectly legitimate for you to take this up to the Judicial Committee. Well, isn't that a great example of critical thinking, right? I mean, this is, this is uh, what you would hear at the Supreme Court discussions of where freedoms collide with one another. Yeah. This is the kind yeah. of thing. So ch I, I believe children engage in this kind of thing all the time. I don't think this is an unusual thing. Yeah. We, we observe many examples of, of things like this, and it's especially like to, likely to occur if it's age mixed, but it can occur with kids the same age too. You, they're, they're, they're sharing thoughts they're, or they're getting into an argument. They're getting into, even in that baseball game. So there's no umpire. Every time every time that you have a disagreement, you've got to argue it out. And arguing involves critical thinking. If you're going to convince the other person, you've got to come up with some reasons. And Absolutely. that's what critical thinking is. So I really think, again, I don't think critical thinking can be taught. I think it's something that you learn mm -hmm. through experience and, and you learn it. And it comes really from having, it comes really from dialogue. It comes from, you can be pretty uncritical at least at first, if you just are thinking for yourself, if you're just daydreaming, you've got, you get this idea and it's later at some point you become your own critic and that off where you've got an internal voice. You're saying, you know, you, I've, you, you think of this and then some other part of you says, oh yeah, but that's crazy for this reason and that reason. You begin to have your own internal dialogue. But Vygotsky's belief, and I think he was probably generally correct on this, 
is that begins with an external dialogue when you're young. It begins where you say something and then somebody else contradicts it in one way or challenges it or questions it. And then you've got to respond to that. And that's where you have to start thinking about what you just said and really raise the question to yourself, is it true or not? And if I believe it's true, why do I believe that? I've got to explain myself here. I can't just hold this as, <laughs> as otherwise is, you know, is just a fantasy. Yeah. So that's, um, that's how I think critical thinking develops. So I think critical thinking absolutely develops in play and primarily in social play. Yeah, beautiful. Well, Peter, um, I think we're coming to the hour and a half mark, but I just wanted to thank you so much for um, coming on my podcast. It was such an honour and I know a lot of people are very excited to hear this interview. Um, I would just like to hear just as a parting words, your where you see the future of uh school <laughs> and I know what you're going to say but I wonder if it's changed a little bit since writing your book and with the current events you know I do have a blog post uh in um in which I have sort of outlined my vision for the future of education so let me just refer to that I yeah. you know, somebody can find it just by blogging Peter Gray um vision for education or something like that yeah. psychology today blog um but basically i my vision for the future is sort of a three-stage um three-stage uh system of education where the first stage is um the stage that i call finding yourself and learning about the world around you and it's basically what we've been talking about, sort of a, you, it might occur at a Sudbury school or through unschooling, but I, I also envision, I envision um, libraries playing a big role in this. Libraries mm -hmm. becoming centers for self-directed education where kids can hang out in libraries and there's other kids there and they're like, they're kind of like Sudbury schools, but they're publicly supported because they're libraries that get public support. Yep. And so, so kids and there's age mixed and you're doing and you're spending time there doing various things, playing with people, figuring out what you like to do. The second stage is the stage of sort of apprenticeships. So this would be, I would do away with four-year colleges. I would go to a system where the next stage is that at some point, maybe kind of in your mid to late teens, you develop some ideas about what you might want to do to make a living and as a career, if we still can think of careers in this world. Yeah. So you're, um, so you, 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 you develop some ideas based on what you like to do, but you haven't at that point had any real practical experience in that career. So the next stage would be some practical experience. So mm -hmm. let's say you've decided that you, for whatever reason, you think you might want to be a doctor, but you've never been a doctor. Your parents aren't doctors. You don't really know a lot about what it is to be a doctor. So the next stage might be to work in some way in a hospital or in a doctor setting at some low level job. Maybe you're an orderly or an assistant to a nurse or, but, and you might, and at this stage, you might be getting paid a little bit because you're doing some real work, mm. but you're also, you're trying this out. You're seeing, you're in a world where you can see what doctors do and, and you're deciding, do I actually like this life of a doctor? You know, uh, do I like being around sick people? Do I have that kind of patience? Do I like this or that? So you're, 
And um, so you have this opportunity to try it out. You're learning some skills that are related to being a doctor that um, just, by, just by being around and an assistant and observing what they're doing. And then maybe you make the decision that you wanna be a doctor or maybe you decide, no, this really isn't the life for me, in which case you sort of try something else. Maybe I'd like to be a chef. So you try cooking in a restaurant. Uh, being a line cook, uh, what it, you know, seeing if you enjoy being that kind of a life. And you kind of move around until you find something that really seems to click with you. And then you pursue that. But let's say, let's go back to the doctor thing. And let's say yeah. you've decided you want to be a doctor. Then that's the only place uh, that and a few other careers where people's lives could depend on your having the best knowledge and really honing the skills to the uh, uh, as you know to the best that science has shown uh, that that we uh, has shown that works mm -hmm. uh, then you would, would go to medical school this would be the only place where you're going to get formal training in this whole thing <laughs> you know yeah now you go to medical school and you learn all those important skills but by now you know you want to be a doctor in order to get into medical school you would have to First of all, you'd probably get recommendations from the people that you were working with on your apprentice. They would say, yeah, this person, this, this young person seems to have the kind of personality to be a good doctor, seems to be bright and so on and so forth. But maybe the medical school would also say, well, you know, we got these great recommendations and you seem to have the personality to be a doctor, but we also need to know that you can really understand the science behind all this that you you are you know you you can do the microbiology and understand what viruses are and all of this kind of thing so we're going to insist we're going to require you to take a course or two in microbiology and and something else uh, organic chemistry and microbiology let's say uh, as also part of your admissions. Well, we'd still have community colleges and they would be teaching courses that people need for one reason or another. And among those courses would be the courses that medical schools want you to take. So, but instead of four years of college, you're now just taking a couple of courses to prove to the medical school that you're capable of that kind of thinking that they believe is important to you for as part of your ability to be a good doctor before they would take a risk on you as accepting you as a medical student. If you were going to become an electrician, I would similarly want you to go to be certified and be trained in some way. So you knew all the codes, you knew all the, you knew all the safety measures so that you didn't wire a house in such a way that it would burn down and kill somebody at some point. And so there's certain kinds of jobs where I think it's important to have certification and real formal education, but I don't think there's any point in formal education prior to that. Yeah. 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 I agree. So that's my vision for the future. Of yeah. Beautiful. Education. Well, Peter, thank you again. It's been an honor to have you here. It's been a great pleasure to be with you on the other side of the world. Okay. Yes. Thanks, Peter. Bye-bye. Have Bye. a good day. And I'm going to bed now. So. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Renegade Mama. If you would like to connect with me, submit a birth story, or just find out a little more about what I do, check out my website at therenegademama.co. Or you can connect with me on Facebook as The Renegade Mama or Instagram as the underscore renegade underscore mama. 
Lastly, can I ask you share this episode with at least one other person? I want every woman to know it's possible to birth in her power. So please share far and wide. Until next week, remember to follow your intuition, not the institution. We are sovereign. We are free. If you like the Renegade Mama podcast, then leave a review. You can do so on iTunes or our Facebook page. The Renegade Mama is released weekly on both Apple iTunes, Spotify, our website, or wherever you get your podcasts.